श्रीला गुरुदेव की जय श्रीमन महाप्रभु की जय श्री हरिनाम संकीर्तन की जय गौर भक्त वृंद की जय गौर प्रेमानंद हरी हरी वो सो वेलकम टू ऑल ऑफ यू गुड मॉर्निंग फ्रॉम रैली एंड वी आर today continue with our series of lectures about vaishnava etiquette rules and love in the life of a sadhaka today we are in meeting number 15 and we are continue with our discussion on archana today is the second and most probably last meeting in connection to this anga of uttam bhakti and how to properly address it with proper again the quorum regards understanding contexts and so on so before going to today's topic let's make some brief summary recap of what we were studying in our previous lecture last thursday <clears throat> where we began this series on archana this section on archana and as usual before starting today actually we will start with more practical tips in connection to how to deal hmm, with uh, this realm of service first we started as usual with uh, conceptual orientation some some band about what's archana what's uh, archabigraha what's the deity hmm, who is the deity hmm, what's the altar how we are supposed to conceive hmm, such portal in order to properly again engage with it hmm. So I of course I didn't enter into the details and I won't enter into the details of, of how to worship Sri Murti and the mantras and how to execute all the different aspects of daily uh archana because to begin with that for that diksha is required as we mentioned and not everyone necessarily has that and also again this is not a topic for for this series in particular So when we started we made some also difference between the concept of puja that sometimes it's used but generally is more connected to to an idea in, in the line of by the mark and in, in contrast we have the conception of seva for us in the ragamark or also sometimes called paricharya and when we say archana we will conceive in those terms puja will be a more if you will ritualistic and distant type of approach hmm? that of other sampradayas which we are of course not criticizing but basically are not interested in in the degree of intimacy that the ragamark is affording so in our connection the term generally uses seva hmm? seva to takurji hmm? so seva means pleasing actions for the pleasure of the object of our affection basically hmm? so that's a really different orientation that just Uh, worshiping bhagavan because he must be worshiped since he's god and so on more by kuntha like orientation in that case so this archana especially in this context of of this the path of rag as it should gradually evolve in that direction has a lot to do with engaging our senses in a comprehensive way all the different senses engaged touch sight and so on in connection to offering those senses for the pleasure of the senses of bhagavan rishikesh rishikena rishikesh sevanam bhakti ruchati we also share some ideas about 
the deity, the concept of archa vigraha, sometimes we call deity, and, and the idea of matter, hmm? a figure made of matter, but eventually becoming imbued of Swarup Shakti by the by the sadhu inviting Bhagavan to reside in that particular form. And at that moment we start to see that with new eyes, if you will, spiritualized matter. And the deity as Archabigraha, we mentioned different types of extended grace, if you will, from Bhagavan in his own personal form, Swayam Bhagavan in the form of Buha, Avatar, expansion, descending to this world, and so on. Especially Archa. Archa Avatar is a special extension of Bhagavan's grace reaching to us in a way that we can handle with, as Sila Prabhupada will say. Hmm. And also we emphasize this idea that the deity of Krishna is actually Krishna. Hmm. Even though we may speak in terms of the deity of Krishna, we may say the name of Krishna or Bhagavatam, the book about Krishna, at the same time we should really know and understand uh, Nam is not different from Krishna, Bhagavat is not different from Krishna, and in the same way, Archa Bigraha, the deity is not different from the from Krishna, who is our deity, our Easter Devata. Also, we share some ideas about the cons- the idea of entering the altar. What does it mean to enter into an altar? It's not just a geographical movement, but has to do with accessing Srila Gurudev's heart. It's a way of entering into the Jogapith, the stage where the Lila is performed amongst the deities there in the altar and the different associates accompanying them. We also emphasize the importance of not idealizing the deities, projecting our own idea on them, what they are what they are for us according to what we feel or what we need, but actually understanding who they are independently of our ups and downs or whatever experience, which is their identity, their mood, their psychology, their etc. We also share some ideas about the main deities in our sampradayas, hmm? Gaudiya Sampradaya, Radha Krishna, hmm? Gaur, Nityananda, Gaur Gadadar, Krishna Balaram, Mahaprabhu, and other, of course, possibilities, Shalagram, Giriraj, Srimhadev, different, different moods, of course, and it's important to get acquainted with the particular mood hmm, of each deity because that's the way we approach and we worship the deity through a particular hmm, type of conception and mood following that. Also, we put some emphasis on the importance of establishing the sadhu above the deity even, in the sense that the deity is living in the sadhu's heart, as we spoke yesterday in one lecture. Sadhavam hridayam mayam sadhunam hridayam toham, Bhagavan says. I am the hearts of the sadhus, the sadhus are in my heart. I am their heart, they are my heart. So to, to really emphasize Vaishnava Seva, sadhu sangha has to do with worship of the deity because that's what's in their heart if you will if we don't have that conception generally that's the finest kanista mm. means neophyte mentality which means i conceive krishna i worship krishna but i cannot see krishna in the heart of the devotee which in one sense implies still i cannot see krishna he is basically the, the krishna we want to worship and also in connection to the offerings to the deity, we mentioned the importance of not only doing the external offerings, but also every offering, trying to offer everything mentally, internally. It's not only a physical act. Archana engages our senses, but all the senses are engaged in such a way that our mind may be engaged. And we may be offering and doing whatever we are doing externally, internally as well. So this Archana has to do with the realm of ritual, which means... Uh, 
one step here, one step there, and gradually progressing from the more, if you will, external orientation to something more and more internal, where eventually our service will be performed from the vantage point of view of bhava. That's called bhava seva. So the offering will be the flower of our heart, if you will, the particular ecstatic emotions that we will be willing to give to this Tadeva at every moment. We share some stories like the one of Sanatan Goswami and so many others where they worship the deity in a very different standard than the one you will find in Archapadati, in Archanapadati, in a manual handbook for worship. Because again, heart has awoken. So eventually our worship should take us in that direction. Our seva, I would say. I mean, worship, we can use the term, but sometimes worship may be connected to a more reverential conception. So we are loving, affectionate, loving. Of course, we cannot imitate Brajavasis, and we know that by the end, some rules and regulations have their place in the context of building some uh, foundation, a certain fence, if you will, protective fence for the development of our Raga, Bad. But eventually everything has, has should become Anudipana, as my Guru Maharaj will say. The whole world has the potential of becoming Anudipana, a stimulant for that. So this way, some ideas we share, trying to become aware Deity is Bhagavan. I'm not looking at the Deity. Deity is looking at me. Srimurti is looking at me. And we, in order to emphasize that, we finished our last lecture with a very nice story from Sila Siddhar Maharaj, a well-known one, when he went to court and he was about to lose three acres of property and he made this legal case and eventually it's mentioned that the land be belongs to Ra Guru Goranga, Radha and Krishna, and they want to give three acres <coughs> because Radha and Krishna were supposedly married and so on. And he said, no, they're in Parakia, and eventually Sri Chaitanya Math remained intact. But the point is how we conceive the deity and how Archana can take so many different forms, even in court. That's part of our service, if that's required to our Easter day. So, after this recap, we'll continue as usual with um, today's topic, which will be a continuation of Archana, but today we'll go into more, again, practical considerations regarding Vaishnava etiquette in connection to Srimurti. So after this detailed introduction to the concept of Archana, to the concept of Srimurti, which again is really crucial for having the proper regard for them, we'll share some tips under the shelter of such a conception that we have shared in our previous lecture. But before going to a long list of do's and don'ts, mainly don'ts, that generally are invoked in connection to Seva, to, to Srimurti, to Artana. It's a long one, so I will present the main points in that list. First, I would like to invite us to remember that, the, as we already mentioned, the essence of Vaishnava etiquette in Artana, for us Gaudias in particular, is to have a favorable attitude of pleasing Srimurti. Again, seva has to do with that. Anukul, seva. Anukul qualifies furthermore the term seva. Anukul means favorable. So I will engage in those things that are pleasing to Sri Murti and I will pray and make my best effort to develop the intention of pleasing Sri Murti. Not only casually doing something pleasing to Bhagavan, but wanting to do that with all my heart, gradually trying to enter into that land. And all the other details will be properly accommodated in time, if that's in place. Yesterday I was hearing one 
mention of one devotee that they, the devotees were in one place worshiping the deity and their guru came. So they were like concerned, are we worshiping the deity nicely or not? Maybe Krishna is not pleased. So Gurudev, what do you, what do you think? Are we doing things okay? And, and, and he looked at the deity and he said, well, he seems smiling and he's a little bit fat. <laughs> like implying... He's happy and you are, he's eating nicely, so he must be happy. Like, no, don't go neurotic about hundreds of details and do's and don'ts that we will share some of them today, but try to concentrate in the, developing the proper mood hmm, of pleasing Bhagavan. So that said, let's go to some, uh, mainly, as I say, don'ts in a long list of what's called Seva Aparat, which again, even though we may speak in a lot in terms of negativity, what not to do, Indirectly, we have to, of course, understand what to do. If this is not to be done, so indirectly, that's telling me what's to be done in every single circumstance. So there's a list that generally is shared whenever someone speaks about Vaishnava etiquette in connection to Archana. There are some offenses to avoid that are listed in Baraha Purana and other Puranas as well. And again, indirectly, they are telling us how to offer Anukul Seva. So I will share the main ones. There are many, many, hundreds. <laughs> and some of them will be connected uh, to having darshan of Srimurti and some others will be connected to being in the altar, per se, entering the altar and offering seva to Thakurji. But before, of course, again, we have for this we imply we are entering into the temple, whether it will be in our house or, or outside of it, whatever. Ideally, our house should be a temple somehow or other. But the whole idea is, even if you read books like Hari Bhakti Vilas, and they will speak about the temple, uh, how to construct a temple, even though we may not be able to do it in that way in, in, in the West, from zero, construct something in a particular way. But the, the idea, the gist of that is, generally the temple is constructed in, in harmony hmm, with the whole universe, hmm, to, to avoid inauspiciousness, for example, and, and there's a whole conception like the entrance of the temple is the mouth, the, 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 the dome is the head, the sanctus sanctorum, if you will, the inner chamber, the altar is the heart or the womb. Some microcosmic representation of the universe also, is, if you will, similar, similar to this body. And when we put Tilak and see when this body is a temple, Mandir. There is a nice quote from Mircea Eliade, who is a famous... Uh, commentator on religious and myths and so on. So he said that given that the temple represents in one way this body, of course there's many forms of understanding the temple, but I think it's an important point. This journey inside the temple represents a journey inside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the contact with the image of divinity in the heart, he says, in the temple is a symbolic replica of the meeting with divinity in the center of our own heart. So again, we are not saying that with this, that the deity in the altar is merely a symbol, or merely some representation. But at one point, it's reminding us about how whatever we are perceiving on the outside, in the temple, is to be happening in the inside. Again, our heart has to become a temple. The deity, eventually, our istative has to be enthroned there forever, and so on. So given that, understanding how the, the entrance to a temple has to do with an inner journey, it's not necessarily an outer movement. On, on that case, the outer movement is trying to create some inner movement, some in-reach. So 
naturally we will understand, okay, this is a sacred place, sacred spot, and all this has to do with something I have to reach internally. So how to deal with such a reality? So on the basis of that, we will have this many considerations of do's and don'ts, considering that we already understand where we are in a sacred spot. And eventually, and as we spoke in the beginning of this series, Vaishnava etiquette has to do with perceiving the sacredness in everything, not only sacred people, personalities, sacred elements, items, stuff, and eventually understand, again, the whole world is an Udipana, has the potential of being increasing the sacredness of everything, because everything is sacred in connection to our deity. So I will share some ideas, many of you, you may already know many, some of them, which will be some of them more obvious than others, some of them may not, let's say, let's see. So let's begin with the list. The first point that we will share is, you should not enter, it is said, in the temple, uh, in a car, <laughs> or in a palanquin, or with your shoes on. So, you may understand the car, the car is most probably won't fit the door to the temple, but you shouldn't enter with your car or in any car whatsoever, not even in palanquin, like in playing. If someone is to be taken in palanquin to the temple, what will be the deity itself in some particular festival? So I'm here entering as a sevak. I'm here entering, trying to, again, access a particular portal. And that's why also the shoes are off. The shoes represent, uh, symbolize, symbolize the walking on the world sometimes. You know? So that's why we leave the shoes off. Because the world remains outside of the temple. Entering the temple means entering another reality. Entering another... That again, in time that another reality should be extended outside of the temple room. But at least we have to begin somewhere, one spot, one room, one place, where we can really overtly, clearly perceive sacredness and can align ourselves with that, let ourselves be affected by that. So when we go out of that space, we can hopefully extend that experience in one, two places, three places, and eventually everywhere. But again, beginning somewhere, leave your shoes off because again shoes represent you're walking on this world so i don't want to walk inside the temple in the same way i walk on this world arjuna asked krishna the gita how does a saintly person sits and walks like implying there's a different movement yesterday the walking the movement of a Vaishnav, they are not so easy to understand <laughs> so we have to leave the shoes often, it's a symbol also, again, it has to do with, I'm leaving my walking. And of course, be, besides cleanliness, and you have been walking outside, you won't enter into a temple like that, but let's. we have to take the, the deeper conception here. Also, some other recommendation is, you should not stop celebrating many festivals for the pleasure of Bhagavan, which is another way of saying, you should celebrate. So again, you have to take the indirect. Indians like to speak indirectly a lot <laughs> on Shastra. No? So one should not stop celebrating the many festivals for the pleasure of Bhagavan, such as Janmashtami, Ratha Yatra, Gorpurnim, Radhastami, so on. So we are about to celebrate very soon Gorpurnim and other festivals. So Sri Vyasa Puja also, when Sri Guru appears, that's for the pleasure of Bhagavan. He will be rejoiced for that. So 
it's not it's not i mean or, the point is organizing these festivals is not just a social event it's not something okay i have to do it coming then master me what to do or something only thinking about getting more people new people preaching of course that may be a bright product of that but the main motivation is i want to give pleasure to bhagavan i want to get closer to my deity but that special days with a special power special bhakti samskars can come special absorption in shravan kirtan satsanga and so on so that that's the gist of, of organizing and participating in those celebrations and bhagavan will be pleased by that also, it is say one should not avoid offering obeisances into, unto the deity when entering the temple and when going out of the temple. So that's also some important thing. We already spoke about pranam, dandavats, different types of pranam. And when having when entering the altar, uh, the, the deity, sorry, the, the temple, in front of the deity, one should offer pranam when entering, when leaving. And again, it's not. It shouldn't be a mechanical aerobic-like exercise, but it should be a really felt movement on the outside that will create some movement on the inside. As we mentioned also recently, it is said that one should not prostrate oneself only with one hand. And the two hands should go to the ground and put them on the floor, put our head and so on. And if you are chanting Japa, you cannot do pranam with your Japa in your hand because you will put your Japa on the floor. That's one offense. You will be offering pranam with one hand. That's another offense. So you, you will be engaging in two offenses simultaneously, and I'm sure you don't want that. <laughs> so one should take off one's japa mala in that case and offer pranam properly with two hands on the floor and the rest, the other parts of the body as well. Hmm? Also, it is mentioned that one should not. Um, how to say? One should not. Let me think. How do you say this in English? One should not extend, stretch, basically once legs mm, in front of the deity or mm, pointing with one's feet to the deity or one should not just lay down on the floor in front of the deity mm. also to say one should not like put one's back on the walls of the temple it is said that the walls of the temple represent Sri Balaram who is a personification of Sandini Shakti the existential potency mm. so we should not lie on, on Baladev mm, only Mahabishnu is doing that on Sankarshan or Krishna on Baladev, but we should not just sleep on Baladev's wall back, if you will. So ideally, all this again, the gist of this is not, I, I cannot touch the wall. If I touch the wall with my back, it's an offense. But the idea is to develop a proper awareness where I am, in the sacredness of this place, who is in the altar, and how should I behave as if Krishna is in front of me, because it is. At least in theory, it is. In practice, I may not yet feel, see, hear him, but I know he's there. My guru has told me that, and that there are reasons for that. There's a logic for that. So I should behave accordingly. That's the point. And gradually, by properly doing so, of course, a vision will awaken in us. Also, one should not accept prasadam in front of the deity. That's that's to be done somewhere else, basically. Or, if for any reason there is no other place to take prasad because the place is too small or whatever, the, the altar should be closed. The curtains should be closed. Hmm? Another <coughs> another advice is one should not lie before the deity, but not lie like being a liar. I mean, not just 
sleeping in front of the deity, but engaging in lies in front of the deity. And of course, by extension, you should say, not even in another other place as well. <laughs> it's not that, okay, in front of the deity, I will be truthful, satyam, but when I go out the temple, I may say something else. That's again the psychology of a Kanishta Bhakta, who behaves in certain way in front of the deity, in the altar, in the temple, because he or she only perceives Krishna there. So when he or she goes somewhere else, we'll feel, oh, Krishna is not here, Guru is not here, I can do whatever I want, I can lie, I can steal, or I can engage in nonsense. I'm not in front of Krishna. So he or she has not the capacity of extending the experience in front of the altar, in the temple, to everywhere else. And that's why that person is termed uh, a beginner, if you will. Also, apart from not lying in front of the deity, one should not uh, actually speak with other people in front of the deity. Hmm? One should not speak in loud voice in front of the deity. Again, you are in front of Bhagavan. So the point is, how should you behave? How would you behave if you are in front of Bhagavan? You will be chatting, chit-chatting with others and speaking about this and that and laughing, like totally forgetting that Bhagavan is there. That's the main point we are trying to make here. I mean, if you really understand... Krishna is here. What should I be doing? I should be just engaged in service because on one side my prospect, my eternal ideal is to be fully engaged in his service at every moment. So now I have him in front of me having the chance of engaging in his seva but I start chit-chatting here and there. So I, I'm saying to him basically I do not care for you too much yet. So again, although we don't see Krishna in the deity yet, we don't feel fully his presence, we know he's there. So at least we should behave as if he's there because he is there. He's seeing us. <laughs> we may not be seeing him. So again, as we mentioned, the idea is to act, to act as if Krishna is there because he is actually there. So that that will that's the main point of all these rules. To behave in certain way that you really realize and remember to yourself. Remind yourself, here is Krishna. How should I behave in front of Krishna? And gradually extend that idea wherever you go. Another rule in this same direction is you should not fight with others. You should not have disputes in front of the deity. And again, hopefully not outside of the temple as well. But if in case you want to do that, <laughs> the point is do not make a scandal in front of the altar and the temple. and the deity. That's not the best offering you can, you can present for sure. <laughs> but again, if you have the potential of universalize your deity and realize he, she is present everywhere, you will start to align yourself. As we mentioned the other day, one of the main points in the Vaishnava etiquette is you should behave as if your guru is always with you, in front of you, because he is. He is. So the main problem for us is that on so many moments we we'll forget that and we start to be nonsensical. <clears throat> we forget Gurudev is here, Vaishnavas are there, Harinam is there, Paramatma is there, Bhagavan is there. <laughs> mm? So that, that that take us to a certain moral lapse, maybe. But as much as we become Krishna conscious, strictly speaking, that means Krishna conscious means to be, become aware of Krishna. And that's not, not it's not just say, oh yeah, I know him, he exists. He's there, he's everywhere, he's in my heart. <laughs> mm? So one should not uh, chastise others in front of the deity. Hmm? Ideally, one should not be using leather leather clothes, leather items in front of the deity. Hmm? And hopefully not outside as well. 
I mean, this is a product of violence. Of course, that's there's a lot of relativity to that. You may not be using leather clothes and other clothes, which are also product of some level of violence, and you, we can make a whole case for that. But I think you get the gist. No, at least leather clothes are overtly violent in every single sense of the term. So try try to avoid it, especially in front of the deity. If for some particular reason you have to use that certain cowboy boats or something and you cannot find vegan leather that I think nowadays you find those things. Whatever. You won't be entering with your boats boots on the on the temple anyhow anyway. Also one of the de the rules is one should not stop worshipping the deity according to the means that Bhagavan is giving to us. Hmm? So it's another way again in the negative term saying this you should continuously worship the deity if you have a deity it's therefore to be in worship not to worship whenever you like basically it's some commitment it's try to understand he is a family member because our line in particular tries to worship Krishna in that mood as one of us one of the village one one of the family one member of the family like an ordinary friend ordinary quote unquote of course so I mean you, you you eat every day, you give your dog food every day, you wake up every day, you go to sleep every day, you bath, you have bath hopefully every day. <laughs> so in the same way, the point is, the deity is there waiting for all those types of sevas. So you can realize, oh, he's with me, he's a member of the family, he's living with us. So gradually those that type of attention and awareness is to take us in that direction. And this line is saying, according to each... The capacity of each person. So, of course, the Gita is saying, Patram Pushpam Falam Toyam, you can offer me flower, leaf, water, something very simple, fruit. But, Bhakti Bhakti, two times in the verse he's saying Bhakti. So, Bhagavan's diet is mainly based on Bhakti. Not on milk products, or sometimes you to say, no, but Krishna likes so much milk products. No, Krishna likes bhakti basically. You can offer again, leaf, food, flower, and he will accept that. He will eat that. The banana peels offered by Bidura's wife if, if bhakti is there. But of course the idea is, okay, so a little water is enough? Great. No. If you have enough means, if Krishna is giving you enough means, you should invest them in, there, in that. And by investing that, you are investing your, your pocket for Krishna, you are giving your heart to Krishna. So I always share this story with once one devotee was speaking and someone asked him, are you more interested in my heart or in my pocket? So the Vaishnava say, in both of them. Because nowadays, at present, your heart is in your pocket. So give me your pocket. It will be give me your heart in one, in one level. And eventually, I, I, in other words, I'm interested in your heart. But since your heart is in your pocket, I'm interested in your pocket. Not because the pocket in itself, but because your heart is stuck there. So give your pocket, invest basically your the result of your work and your energy for the pleasure of Bhagavan. So if there are means, enough means, you should dedicate them for the pleasure of the deity. <clears throat> and again, as much as the Baba increases, the offering externally may become more and more simple because the internal offering becomes more and more elaborate in the terms of Baba. But we cannot imitate that, so we should be balancing that in, the, in what we are offering, both internally and externally. Also, we should not sit giving the, our back to the deity. 
that's another thing. I mean, Bahir Moka, Samukhyano, we should look at the deity to, to show our face, back to Godhead, if you will. That's the whole idea of, of this title that Srila Prabhupada used, back to God. We should turn our face back to Godhead, not give your back to Him, hmm? our back to Him. So we should sit looking at the deity, generally, not giving our back. It is said we should not uh, disdain, you say, disdain, like, uh, yeah, disdain the demigods, the devas in front of the deity. And not, uh, not outside of the temple, again, all the things are to be applied outside, but especially there. Hmm? So the devas are not to be insulted, they are, they are bhaktas, most of them there may be sakama bhaktas, but they are bhaktas anyhow, they are to be properly respected. Also, it's mentioned that one should not enter into the altar, into the temple, sorry, and into the altar as well, without making a noise. Some, not noise, some sound before. So, generally, sound, you may have some bell in the temple that you may sound, or some people may, like, clap their palms, do some clapping, or some may just basically invoke the name of the deities and glorify them. Jai Shri Sirata Sarat Bihari Juki Jai. Like, like, Mention, uh, say, telling to Bhagavan, here I am. Of course, he knows, but <laughs> we need, mm, we need to, to remind ourselves that he knows by saying that. So again, the whole principle is mainly for us to become aware of who is there and what's, which are the expectations in connection from the deity to us and how to properly reciprocate. Mm. If one is worshipping in the altar, one should worship in silence, if you will. One is reciting certain mantras internally, and so one should not start speaking. The point is, while worshipping, if you are worshipping the deity, doing arti, making some offering of boga, one should not break the silence in the midst of those moments. Because again, you are interacting with Bhagavan in a particular way. So it's important to, to maintain that idea, not to start about speaking about who knows what, while you are dressing the deity, if you will. So all this is trying to help us to enter the proper mode. If, we are, if you are also Pujari engaging in the worship, you should not go to the bathroom. If you are there, and if you have to, of course, then you will have to have a bath again before entering the altar. That's the, the, the ideal standard. One should not offer to the deity flowers that do not have fragrance because generally the offering of the flower has to do with offering of the element of fragrance smell has to do with it it's connected as we will see now with the different sense these five main senses and the different objects in the arctic incense flower lamp has to do with touch smell sight and also air water fire either and so on also it is mentioned uh, one should not enter the altar, the temple, sorry, and by, by addition the altar, right after having sexual intercourse. Mm. So what's the idea here? And I think you can imagine. And that extends to another mentioning that is said, one should not, if you saw, we have someone asked my Guru recently about that, if you have just seen a dead body, you should not go to the altar or to the temple. And they prescribe some certain amount of day for Brahmins and Kshatras, but be, be, beyond the Barnashram considerations, the point here is most generally, in most of the cases at least, those types of activities tend to increase our bodily identification. If you are having a sexual intercourse, if you are having seen dead bodies and so on, 
So the point is, you may go to the temple and you may project a material idea on the deity because of your own absorption, if you will, in, 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 on some level or another in that particular exper recent experience. So in that sense, it is recommended give some space for that so you approach the deity with proper vision and you are not just seeing the deity as a material element because that will be not the upper half. So that's the gist of the idea. It's not so much you cannot see that, you cannot do this, but if that's, most probably if that's happening, try to be aware of, not pro try to be careful not to be projecting that idea there. Also, one of the maybe more uh, difficult to understand ones is that one should not enter the temple wearing clothes, red clothes or blue clothes. So that may create some complexity here because that may be more difficult to, well, I have this clothes, what to do with this or that. But I will say that this has, I consider this more of a relative uh, advice, but I think mainly the idea has to do with blue in this case having to do with tamas and red having to do with with rajas and generally those two colors are connected with these two modes and generally they connect yellow sometimes or white sometimes with sattva like the three main colors and so on so the idea for me will be if you have red or blue it means there is a subtle invocation to the principle of tamas and rajas so try to avoid as much as you can any influence from the gunas which sometimes may be so subtle and we may not be even aware that we are invoking a particular rajasic wave into our life by having that and that color but that may be there so at least when you are going to a deity try to be as much uh, devoid of those influences as much as you can so if that even takes to put in some other color that will help you okay no problem. We see that generally uh, sometimes practitioners may wear white or colors like this. So there is a point for that. But again, with this, we don't mean that to absolutize that. And if someone came to the temple with a red T-shirt, you have to keep them out because there will be an apparatus or whatever. Not to go to those extremes, but trying to get the gist mm, of these ideas according to the language of psychology of the time and what they were trying to tell us that time and how to apply that today. Also some other recommendation is you should not be angry in a temple, basically. If you are entering the temple, if you are in front of the deity, you should not be angry. You should try to solve that and not go with your anger to the deity, if you will. That won't be the best offering again. You should try to make the best effort to present yourself in a more, in the most uh, favorable way. For the pleasure of the deity again the deity is not there just to deal with our anger sometimes in the beginning we may need to throw that to to the Ishtadev and please krishna give me mercy blah, blah, blah. we may uh, we may even get angry with krishna and not in, in the appropriate way of the brajavasis <laughs> we cannot imitate that so cheaply so we should know how to deal with those things and be careful if i'm going to a sacred spot if you will Try not to bring with me certain things that I can deal with them in some other way and so on. Also, it is advised not to consume intoxicants in front of the deity. Just in case. I think we already imagined that. Not in front, not outside, but just in case that's mentioned. Also, one should not um, insult, if you will, um, disrespect any scripture which is teaching about the supremacy of Bhagavan. Um, 
So here some points are connected to the different types of Nama Parad as well. Not insult Vedas or other scripture, we will speak about Bhagavan and so on. Even beyond our own tradition. Also, one should not worship Bhagavan while directly being seated in the floor. So ideally one should have something to sit on, some asana, some little mattress or whatever. Generally that's the custom if you enter into a temple. You should you don't sit directly in the floor in the Gaudiya Sampradaya. Different other sampradayas are different. That day we went to the Bengateshwar temple and we were allowed to the inner chambers of the deity almost. There are different levels of that. And we were sitting right on the floor. So I said, well, okay, we are different sampradaya here. No? So, but there are different considerations. One should not touch the deity, hmm? in the case of someone who is entering to the altar as a pujari, before having fully have bath and achaman and tilak. We already mentioned that. Hmm? Also, ideally, one should not offer to the deity food that has been cooked by someone who is not a Vaishnava. Because again, we are offering to the deity bhakti. So sometimes we will speak about that, of course, when we will we will be sharing some lectures on prasadam as well. So I don't want to overextend here, just in case. But I know that sometimes for for a particular situation, the devotee may get some food that is, has not been cooked by devotees. Ideally, the idea we may cook our own thing with our own level of consciousness, make the offering. But at, at least. Ideally, do not offer to the deity. You may offer something you had to buy in the street for circumstantial reasons, but in the deity at home in the temple, you should offer something that has been cooked by you or, well, something that not, does not necessarily need cooking, like fruits or things like this. Also, in front of the deity, one should not, like, um, rehear do rehearsal or something. No? Like, for example, if you are... I don't know, you are learning to play Mridanga, you should not be practicing Mridanga in front of the deity. You know, the idea is in front of the deity you are offering something already finished, prepared. You are not just like practicing and, and no, because you, again you are in front of Bhagavan, so you want to offer something. Not just because if you are just practicing, again, this will take you to the non awareness that Bhagavan is there, most probably. So ideally, we should not, again, as I mentioned, we should not like rehearse whatever, dancing, music, any offering in front of the deity. We can rehearse somewhere else and eventually we present to the deity the finished uh, product, if you will, the finished offering. Also something in connection to Kirtan that we have been speaking about some lectures ago, while connection with uh, deity, because we have Archana, but we have Kirtan and Artig and there's at the same time, the two things are combining, if you will, with each other. Generally, generally, the idea is that the kirtan may last as long as the arctic is lasting. That's the general uh, advice. Of course, it's not that if you are singing more, you will go to hell or something. But the idea is there is a particular type of kirtan accompanying the arctic ceremony. And at the end of the kirtan, as you, as you may know, and we may include that here, we have what's called sometimes the Prema Duhani. Prema Duhani, which literally translates as uh, sounds of love, if you will. Prem means love and Duhani means sound. So Prema Duhani means sounds of love, which is 
all these different glorifications that we pronounce at the end of the Kirtan and the Arti ceremony in front of the deities. So, of course, there's no fixed rule for pronouncing Prema Duan. There is some order for sure, but it's not that there's only one way of doing that. But I will share with you briefly some ideas in that connection with your permission. And generally, first of all, sometimes one may first say some glorification of the deity, which is in the altar at that moment, like, I don't know, Shishirada Madhavaki Jai, the deity that one has just offered this kirtan, and then one can start glorifying the parampara, beginning with one's own guru, and with certain specific titles, as you know, like Om Vishnupad, Paramahamsa, Stotara, Satri, Srimad, Jai Om Vishnupad, Paramahamsa, Paribra, Jagacharya, Stotara, Satri, Srimad, my case, Silabhaktivedanta Tipurari Swami, Maharaj, Ki Jai. And the rest will reply with the Jai, Ki Jai, all victory. And may they be victorious over us. When we say Ki Jai so many times, I mean, they are victorious already. We need to be invited by their victory. We are glorifying them so part of their Jai, their victory may help us to be victorious on our own mind, senses and whatever. And then we continue with the other members of the Parampara. Generally, in our tradition, we then will glorify my particular lineage. And when we recite some, glorify someone who has passed away, we will start saying, Nitya Lila Pravishta, which means he has entered the Nitya Lila. Pravishta means enter. So Nitya Lila Pravishta, and then the same title of Vishnu Pada Paramahamsa Paribhrajaka Charja Stotara Sata Sri Srimad Avaicharanara Bindam Bhaktivedanta Swami Sila Prabhupada Ki Jai. All these titles, I won't enter into the detail now, but has to do with Astotara Sat means 108. Sri Srimad is a title for a great exalted Vaishna. Vishnupad means he who recites at the feet of Vishnu, in this case of Krishna, is serving there, and so on. And then we will go with Srila Siddhar Maharaj, with Srila Prabhupada Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati Thakur, with Srila Gorki Shorda Babaji. In the case of those who have not been... Uh, Paribrajak Acharyas, which means like Acharyas of pilgrimage, which has to do mainly to itinerant preachers. Generally, we don't use the, the word Paribrajak Acharya, like with Gorky Shorda Babaji. We will just say directly, Jaini Telila Pravistam Vishnupad Paramahamsa Srila Gorky Shorda Babaji Maharaj Jai. Paramahamsa means topmost swam, essentialist. And something similar can be done with Srila Thakur Bhaktivinoda. Again, someone may continue glorifying all the other members like Jagannathas Babaji and Narottam, Srinivas, Shamananda, Vishwanath Chakravarti, We can spend a lot of time in that and it's beautiful. Or sometimes after Thakur Bhaktivinoda, one may go to the six Goswamis hmm, or Vrindavan. Uh, from there glorify, or also glorify where Bhaktivinoda Paribar. Again, there are different ways of doing so. Hmm. Bhaktivinoda Paribar Kijai, Rupa Sanatam, Bhatta Ragunath, Sri Jiva Gopal Bhatta Dasa Ragunath. Sat Goswami Prabhu Ki Jai, Rupanuga Guru Bhargava Ki Jai, the lineage coming from Sila Rupa Goswami, then we may go to Goswami, go to Panchatattva, entering Gaur Lila, Prem Sekaho Sri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Sri Advaita Galadar Sri Vasadi Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai. Prem Sekaho means with love, let's sing these names of the Panchatattva. And from the Panchatattva, sometimes Sitakur Haridas is glorified as Namacharya also. And then we go to Krishna Lila. Shishirada Krishna Gopa Gopigos Shama Kunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhan Ki Jai. So there we include Radha Krishna, Gopas, Gopis, cows, 
Shamakunda, Radhakunda, Giriraj, Govardhan, like these main sacred sports of Krishna Lila in a condensed way. And we glorify them. And then again comes a list of other things that can be invoked, like the three main deities of Vrindavan, Radha Madhamoha and Radha Gopindaji, Radha Gopinaju, to glorify Sri Harinam Sankirtan Kijai, Sri Matitulasi Maharani Kijai, Bhakti Devi Kijai, Sri Mukhavagavan Ki Bhakti Vignasana, the protector of one's devotion to Sri Mukhavagavan, one glorified Prahlad Maharaj. Again, there is many possibilities. Also, according to one's affinity or to the deities that have been mainly established with one's own Guru there, one glorified them. There is no, again, fixed rule, but certain standard, like I mentioned in here. In this, in this order, Sri Radha Vrindavaneshwari, Sri Radha Thakurani Kijai. And at the end, one may say Anankta Koti Vaishnava Vrindaki or Gaur Bhakta Vrindaki, glorifying all the assembled devotees that may be present in that moment. And at the end, generally, we will finish saying Gaur Prema Ananda Haribo. With full of love for Sriman Mahaprabhu, Gaur Prema Ananda Haribo. Let's sing Hari. So that will be Prema Dwani, in brief, on offering pranam to the deities. But the conclusion of all this idea of, of art and, and certain rules here is like in front of the deities we should only engage in bhakti, we should only present devotional activities. Again, acting as if Krishna is there in the deity because it is. The deity is not the deity, it's Krishna. It's not the deity of Krishna, it's Krishna. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and again, acting, not only acting as if Krishna is, but understanding which aspect of Bhagavan is in the altar and how I should behave, how I should approach and worship him, her, there, they. <laughs> As I mentioned the other day, this situation when the Kanuram Shilas came here and were put in the, in the altar along with Radha Sarat Bihari and the inspiration came to put them somewhere else because, again, if you have Krishna and Balaram in the same altar with Radha and Krishna, the divine couple will be inhibited from engaging into their most intimate pastime. There won't be Rasa Lila for those days, for sure, <laughs> as well as some other pastimes. So there are subtle considerations, but the idea is to enter gradually in that in that realm. So before finishing, let me share some brief words connected to the Arctic ceremony, which is, of course, part of the <coughs> Archana department. Of course, again, I won't enter into the details of how to perform Arctic how many r- movements of incense and, and so on. But some idea to, to really appreciate this very beautiful ceremony, which is mostly one of the main known, well-known ceremonies of Hinduism itself. So when we offer arti, as I mentioned before, we are offering different elements, mostly incense, ghee lamp, water, hmm, some cloth, flower, chamara, hmm, fan, peacock feather fan. So this represent this upacharas, which means these elements in the Arctic plate, represents different elements also in this world. Everything in this world is made of earth, water, fire, air, either. Mm. Combi- different degrees of combination of that. So that is, this world composed of those elements is represented in this plate. So we, what do we do with this world? We offer that to Bhagavan. Mm. And then when he accepts the offering, we receive the remnants of that. So in the same way, that's a whole idea that should extend beyond the Arctic ceremony and we will approach everything in this world. It's like a big Arctic plate. That's, that's the whole idea. So I was saying that according to our tradition, the Arctic plate represents the whole world, basically. 
So it's important to understand the symbology of that. I'm offering something, earth, water, fire, I'm offering everything. Everything Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta says is potential paraphernalia to be engaged in the service of Bhagavan. So that's the whole idea. Every element of this world is one aspect of the Arctic place. So when we enter the other offer these elements, we are offering this world to Bhagavan first, not to us. We are offering ourselves actually to Bhagavan along with this world. All of them, Maya Shakti, Tadasta Shakti, energies of Shaktiman, Bhagavan. And of course, in more advanced stages, the offering will be in another terms. The, the water, instead of coming from a, a conch shell, will come from your eyes in the form of tears. The fire will be the fire of your bhakti in your heart. Your words will be Puspanjali, a flower petal offering. <laughs> in the beginning, we offered the elements, but the idea with our very elements in our own life, we are offering that for the pleasure of Bhagavan. So again, during the Arti Fur of foremost, the devotee will offer himself, herself, to the deity. And in so and doing so, it, he or she will remove his her hunger, his sense of independent existence, separate, selfish enjoyment, whatever. And he will identify no longer as a material body, material mind, all the supadis and designations, but not with the personality derived from material association and experiences but with the notion that I'm a servitor of the deity. And that's why we mentioned before the Arctic, before entering an altar, and before starting our day, ideally, we have this Buddha Sudhi, this meditation when we invoke certain mantras, or we invoke the idea, I'm, I develop the ego of a servant. My identity is that of Gupi Bhartu Padakamala, your Dasa Dasa Nudas. Of course, one may think in a general sense, in the beginning about this, I'm a servant, and in advanced stages, one will be thinking in terms of one's particular affinity of service, for sure. Also, it's interesting because, again, I will invoke here Gopa Kumar for a minute and Brihad Bhagavatamrita, when it's speaking about Kram, Kram Mukti, which means step by step attaining higher and higher degrees of emancipation in context of bhakti, going through all levels of consciousness, as Gopa Kumar did in, in the Brihad Bhagavatamrita. If one is is the, the, the idea is the devotee will meet all of the deities presiding over the material elements and the devotee will realize all these deities are eternally worshipping the supreme deity. So those who perform arctic in this way can conceive I'm in the presence of all these deities in their purest expression of devotion to Krishna which is an experience that will be witnessed at the time of getting free from all entanglement and all illusion. Also, this is mentioned that there are three types of purity which are necessary for arti. One, drabya suddhi. Suddhi means purity. So, drabya suddhi means the drabya, the articles that will be offered must be pure. First, again, drabya suddhi I was mentioning. First type of purity. The articles must be pure. Then, kriya suddhi. The offering procedure must be pure, which means depending on following the instructions of Shastra, Guru. And finally, we have Bhava Sudhi, which means the consciousness of the offerer must be pure. One's consciousness is pure, of course, by having again an service attitude, absorbing oneself in proper meditation. And, needless to say, as Bhava Sudhi intensifies, one will enter into Krishna Lila, basically. <laughs> and the ritual what began as ritual will become reality, one's reality. Hmm? And one sense the art is a ritual, 
that purifies one's heart, a ritual that is leader to a higher reality, but eventually it becomes that reality unto itself. So that's such the nature of bhakti as we know. Devotion is both means and end. And, 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 and again, as we have heard, even the gopis in Vrindavan or the Brajabhasis, they perform Arctic. So there is Arctic in, in Golok, Vrindavan, if you will, in Nityanavadu. There is Arctic for the Sadaka, for us here, and there is the Arctic for the Siddha, for the perfected being in the Parabhyam. And in our particular lineage, uh, the Raga Marg again, Gaudiya Vaishnav, Raga Marg, the passionate love hmm, towards the Godhead, as the sadhaka gets qualified more and more for Raga Sadhana, Raga Nuga Sadhana, his her orientation towards the rituals of devotion will change, toward Archana, toward Arctic. Hmm? He or she will awaken his own, uh, activate by the grace of Bhakti, the Swarup. Hmm? One Swarup, and again, gradually, the path of Raga eventually will require that the sadhaka contemplates the eternal lilas of Radha Krishna, for example. So in the beginning stages of Raganuga Bhakti, the sadhaka will think of the artist ceremonies throughout the day, for example, in relation to the eightfold daily pastimes of Radha Krishna. That's one option, if you will. Indeed, it is from these pastimes that the artist ceremony derives. And of course, in the again, in the Golok, sometimes it's poetically described that the artist performed with one's own elements. You know, the water is the ecstatic tears, the Abhishek, also the breast uh, milk coming from Jashoda is doing Abhishek to Krishna. Now, immediately from their own being, they are giving themselves fully. Hmm? So this is the particular way that we as Gaudias aspire, at least, to make our Archana converge into this point of passionate devotion hmm, that is performed in Bracha. And of course, again, in Nityanavad, even another mood, Archana is going there with a very unique type of love as well. So, so I want to share as a conclusion one story, hmm? um, nice one in connection to this spirit of detailed worship, t proper, very close to the Raga Mark, and how to really absorb ourselves in, in, in the desire of doing something nicely, that, that even if we forget something else externally, that won't be a defect, but an ornament, if you will. Hmm? So there's one story that Sila Siddhar Maharaj used to share about Raga Bhakti. He gave some examples of this type of service and he told us, I mean, not us, he will tell us here to us, about a boy who was a great poet and intellectual. So he went to school and had to face his final exam. So this is another story from another poet in India. So he and all the other students were given like six questions. That they had that had to be answered in six hours. So after these six hours had passed, this boy, the main character of the story, realized that he was still writing the answer to the first question. So he had been six hours re re responding to one question. So of course the exam time closed, finished, and he thought, "I failed the test. I didn't concentrate on the time, and I just answered too much one first question." So he went home. He told his father and mother. I'm sorry, I failed the exam. He didn't even go back to to school to check the the results of the examination because he was too ashamed to receive such a bad result. Didn't finish even the first question. But after some weeks, it is said that he passed by his school and was curious just to find out how his classmates 
had graduated or not, how they did in the, in the test and so on. So he went to look at the list. There was a list posted of the results of the test. And to his great surprise, he saw that his name was on the top of the list <laughs> as the best graduate of the, the class. So he was like surprised. He said, this is how this is possible. I only answered one of the six questions, not even finished that one. And here I'm posted as the best graduate. This is, there must be some mistake. So he went to the teacher, his teacher, and asked, my dear teacher, I'm very confused about this, this situation. Can you kindly explain me how I became uh, the top most best graduate of class? I didn't reply to the very first question fully. So the teacher, as you may imagine, was a very uh, broad-minded person. So the teacher said, yes, you're right. Technically speaking, you even didn't even finish the first question. You have only answered good part of the first one. But the quality of your answer was that of a postgraduate student. So how, how could I conceive that you wouldn't know the answer to all the other questions? That's the point. That's why I have given you an extraordinary status in your exam, in your test. And then the boy understood how this has taken place. So this story Silasya used to share, like to show how Raga Bhakti may not always follow all the details of Vaidhi Bhakti, if you will, due to time, place and circumstance and due to ex special absorption in some particular case. And, and, and it can be extremely perfected in one area and maybe the other areas may not receive full attention. But the point is, if, if we have that absorption, of course, if not, we should be careful not to neglect the different aspects of Archana in this particular case. But if someone gets really absorbed in one direction and neglects, quote-unquote, some other areas of service, it shouldn't be as a, seen as a mistake, but a very like confidential perfection, very nice ornament. Once one devotee to say something similar to his guru, say, I was meditating, he was absorbed in Lila Shmaranam, and I was uh, trying to perform seva to Shirada and I was trying to to, 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 to to decorate her lotus feet. But I got so absorbed in that that all along the day I was lost in that and I was not able to perform all the other daily services to, to our Shramini, Shirada Thakurani. So he was expressing that to his guru, I failed. I failed in my Lila Shmaranam today. I was not able to complete my service. I only got stuck in the very beginning part of my daily seva decorating her feet and I was all day absorbing that meditation all day long and the Guru started to cry and say you have today succeeded in your Lila Shmaranam you really are doing Lila Shmaranam <laughs> you have lo get lost and found if you will so some ideas I want to share with you today regarding uh, Archana as, as you can see there are many things to say to do to not to do do's and don'ts but all of them in a particular context, in such a way that they may help us to increase our awareness. Bhagavan is there, the deity is not just a deity, how should that behave? And if we do that in the context of the guidance of Guru and Shastra, gradually this type of bhava and feelings will gradually awaken and our focus and our details and our absorption will become to such point that, again, externally that may be seen as a mistake, but internally will be the greatest of all offerings, if you will. So, I think we have hopefully better connection now. So, I will invite you, if you have, uh, to present any questions in this connection. If you have something to, to ask about, to share, there I 
I activated the option of unmuting yourself. So I don't know if there are any questions. Who is speaking? Can I ask a question? Yes. Sorry, um, it's Marosh. Uh, yes. Can you hear me? Yes. I think. Uh, so I want to add. There is a story with the uh, Abiram Thakur. Like he was going, was now like Krishna in deity. The deity was cracking like. So, like, is it that in every de deity there is a Krishna, or how to understand? I was not able to really hear properly your question. The audio gets interrupted also. So can you uh, can you tell it again? It's better now. Or? Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Yeah, tell me. Yeah. So there is a there are stories with Abiram Thakur mm -hmm. that he when he visits the and the Krishna wasn't in the deity. Mm. Was, the deity was cracking. Mm -hmm. So how, how it is possible that Krishna was not in the deity? Or... Mm -hmm. Well, there are many stories, not only of Fabiran Thakur, but about some others as well, who were told similar to that, that if they offer obeisances to to a deity, and the deity, and Krishna was not in the deity, the deity will crack or explode or whatever. So you are asking how is it possible that Krishna is not in the deity, well, we already explained that. Uh, I mean, it's not that the form in itself is a guarantee of the deity. I mean, you can, I mean, you can go to a shop and there are so many deities of Krishna. It's not that Krishna is there yet. I mean, you can go to Loi Bazaar in Vrindavan and, and buy 108 deities. It's not that you have 108 Krishnas with you. I mean, as, I mean... The point is, a Vaishnava, a sadhu, has to invite the deity to, to appear in that particular form. And then we start to worship that form of Krishna as the deity. Before that, it's, it's not worshipable, if you will. Of course, it's a nice form and <laughs> resembles Krishna and so on. But the active principle for us is bhakti. So if if the deity cracked, as you mentioned in the, in the case of Abhiram, it means Krishna was not in the deity. That deity was or not was not properly installed, or whatever there has been apparat doing that happens also as much as there is apparat Vaishnava apparat and so on. Deity may choose to leave because it's not pleased by the the mood because there is no mood at all. There is offense that can happen, and I have there are many pastimes in that connection also where where great personalities are offended and other great personalities may see the deity and perceive Krishna is no longer here. He has left. Because there there's a lot of offense to the Vaishnava. And again, as we've mentioned yesterday and today also, the Vaishnavas are the heart of Krishna. The Vaishnavas are the heart of the deity. So you attack the very heart of the deity. I mean for sure the deity won't be <laughs> remaining there. No, he's not being he's not being worshipped with love. He's attacked. So that's a an important point. So I will say that basically, you no, know, the deity is not necessarily the form, is the deity, and there are many stories to, to that regard as well. So we should have, we should learn to see the Krishna through the eye of the sadhu, through the eye of bhakti. Bhakti is not there, Krishna is not there. That's the logic we 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 know. The shastra reveals, as much as bhakti is there, Krishna is present there. If there is no bhakti at all there, Krishna won't be there, and so on. Okay, I hope that helps. 
there's Sakirati shared one commentary on Facebook in connection to the red and blue. That's a good addition. She says, as far as I know, red and blue are royal colors in India. So it's not suggested to use those colors in order to give reverence to the altar. So royal families were not supposed to use their fancy clothes in front of the altar. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's a good point. I, I think that makes sense a lot as well. What else? Here's one question the chat, Zoom chat from Chandana. She's asking, when the Lord deities are, aren't installed, the attention is the same or more, the attention, I imagine the service, is the same or more simple? Well, there are different considerations about this. What's, what's installed, what's not installed. Sometimes one may think that, I mean, installed... The point, the, the crucial point here is that the sadhu is inviting Krishna to reside in that form. That's what we really think is the install, installation. Because sometimes the devotees that think, oh, the, the deity is more present there because there had been a yagni of three days and f seven fires were ignited and there were Brahmins from South India reciting the Rig Veda and they were, I don't know, they broke like 200 coconuts and for sure Krishna is more present because of all that. And what we say is, no, Krishna will be as present as the bhakti that invited him to be there. So, a sadhu may invite the deity without too much fancy ceremony. And, and we mention also to say that all the details of the ceremony is just to make the most of the general people think, oh, something important is happening there. Oh, Krishna is there because that happened. But actually, the active principle is the invitation of the sadhu. So, and the attention, well, that, that, that has to be spoken with the sadhu. I mean, the sadhu is inviting the deity to reside there, so you will speak with the sadhu according to your capacity of worshipping that deity and, and, and some standard will be established. Ideally, the idea is that we, you can establish a standard that, that you can sustain, not something that you will do with inspiration for three three days or one week and then you start to dilute more and more. No, ideally, you can increase that more and more. But again, this, what's the standard? It's not necessarily I'm offering, uh, technically speaking, more things, but it's not a question of, a question of quantity, but of quality. Mm. So important point of our archana will be to nourish our approach to the deity by Shravan and Kirtan, because that will for sure uh, help us to conceive and to develop a feeling for the deity. So part of our worship of three murtis to increase my awareness, if you will, acquaintance of who the deity is by hearing Shastra from the sadhus and so on. So I will say that it's not just like a fixed rule, more simple, more... Of course there are certain standards of deities installed that have certain artists in the temple, but again, every situation is unique, so there's no like fixed rule. Everything should be spoken accordingly with the sadhu who has invited Krishna to reside there according to one's means, capacities and make everything sustainable. And again, it's not that everyone has to have a deity at home. One can have a picture and sometimes it's better to have a picture in the sense of the sense that someone may like, want to have a deity because everyone else has and <laughs> and sometimes that may not be the best for that particular person. And, and, and having the picture is a good way of understanding there's, there, in one sense, there is no difference between the picture. There are, there are famous devotees who worship a picture, and that picture was their deity. I mean, if you have the proper conception, you will make a difference between a picture and the deity as well. 
So different ways of approaching, and all this again has to be decided with one's own guru. What else? Any other question? Comment? Maharaj, uh, I was just wondering um, that about Srinams. I was wondering, um, I have a big altar, but I have Gornitai, Radha Krishna, and Prabhupada. Um, is that okay? Because, I mean, they're separated, but they're still on the same altar, but I don't want to give them away. <laughs> well, uh... Gornitai and Rad Gornitai, of course, are Krishna Balaram and Gorlila in a particular uh, mood, if you will, of course, of Darya. But still, they are Krishna Balaram, and I do, I'm not saying you have to give them away for sure. <laughs> but but yeah, somehow or other, generally, they are conceived in different altars, as you have seen, for example, in, in the Krishna Balaram temple in Vrindavan. Srila Prabhupada installed three sets of deities, three three altars, if you will. He installed Radha Sham Sundar on one side. He, on, no, he installed Krishna Balaram in the center and he installed Gornitai. So trying to make it clear, these represent different windows of opportunity, different portals, even Gaur Lila, Nityal, and Krishna Lila. Of course, they are one thing, but at the same time, there are some different modes. So Krishna Balaram here, of course, we may not have the means to create such big altars <laughs> but somehow or other it's good to understand at least conceptually even if we don't have the means to to create some if you will physical separation in one same place between the two sets of deities for any whatever reason it's important to conceive that as two different altars if you will as two different portals because again Gornitai and Krishna Balaram and Krishna Balaram won't be their present together when Radha and Krishna are together. So that, that, I mean, if that's important to 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 bear in mind, because if not, our worship won't be according to their bhav, but according to our bhav, and, and that's not the, not the idea. No? For example, you have this Gornagar bhav section, which want to have a romantic interaction with Mahaprabhu. Because they say, oh, he's Krishna himself, so I want to become a manjari of Vishnu Priya and have Madhurya with Sri Chaitanya. But the point is, in the Gaur Lila, he's not in that mood. One has to worship Bhagavan according to the mood he's in, in the Lila, not to according to the mood we are in or we would like him to be in. So it's important to respect that. So that's the point here. When I mentioned this idea of separating worship of Krishna Balaram from Radha Krishna or Gornita Radha Krishna, is trying to understand. They represent different portals, but of course, they are not against each other, something like that. And through Gornitai, of course, we receive so much mercy to enter into the worship of Radha Krishna, if one has that affinity. But at the same time, I mean, if you play out the whole implications of that, Gornitai is Krishna Balaram. And Krishna, and Balaram, especially Balaram in this case, is Doji, the elder brother, so the elder brother will, if, if, if present during Radha and Krishna's union, will create inhibition there. So I'm not saying that you have to buy a new altar or to create a wall there in between them two or something, or, or much less to give them away, but just to create some, at least conceptual fence, if you will, 
where you understand these are two different altars, so you want to put something little to, to create this idea, two different portals. But the main point is that we have the proper conception and we are worshipping them without hodgepodge, if you will, without rasa basa, without mixing improperly the different moods. So I hope that helps. And that was good. That, that, the conceptualization was good. <laughs> okay. Don't give them away. No problem. Okay. So something else before finishing? Any other question? <clears throat> okay. So I think we will finish here today. And we will see each other uh, next Thursday, for sure. Srila Gurudev Ki Jai, Sriman Mahaprabhu Ki Jai, Sri Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Praman Hari